hey, listen, if the Constitution doesn't lay out specifically that something is the federal government's job, Mm -hmm. then it isn't the federal government's job. And in fact, all other powers, I mean, remarkably broad language they used, all other powers are reserved to the state. Welcome back to the interview podcast on the White Middle Podcast Network. I'm Craig Weinberg. And on the phone with us today, we have another, this is part five, I believe, of our political series. Uh, On the phone is Dusty Johnson, who is running for the sole representative seat in the United States Congress for South Dakota. Uh, Welcome to the show, Dusty. Hey, thanks, Craig. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Um, Who are you? Where are you from? Um, And what in the world are you thinking running for Congress? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is probably the most common question I get. What am I thinking, right? People assume I need some some kind of psychological evaluation for running into the burning building. But uh, yeah, so I'll start, uh, you know, where you asked. I mean, kind of who am I? Where did I grow up? I grew up in Fort Pier and Pier. Uh, They're in central South Dakota, a large working class family. There were seven of us. And, uh, you know, there were times when things were tough, but in general, I mean, things weren't that bad. I, we were poor, but I had a family who loved me and we all worked hard. Uh, ended up going to the University of South Dakota, met my bride there. Uh, we moved out of state for a few years, got a graduate degree and worked in the Kansas City area. And then we decided at some point we, we wanted to move uh, back to a pretty special place that had a lot more uh, of what really mattered to us, uh, that was South Dakota. And so we've been back in the state, I don't know, maybe 17 years. We live in Metro. We've got three sons. Um, you know, she works. She, she's the CEO of a financial advising firm in Mitchell. Uh, I'm the vice president of a uh, an engineering company that helps uh, rural telecom providers build uh, fiber optic networks, broadband networks across the country. We do business in about 40 states. And I also have- Wait a uh, second. You know, Wait. You- Work with a telecom that does business in 40 states based in South Dakota? Yeah, I mean, it's not a telecom provider. The telecom provider uh, are our customers. Okay. But we would engineer, we, we'd engineer these fiber optic networks and we'd help them uh, get built. And, and the business unit that I run would help these companies do a better job of running their business. Um, is your wife from South Dakota? She is, yeah. She's okay. a Mitchell gal. And uh, that's part of the reason we moved back to Mitchell. Awesome. Um, what'd you go to school for? Uh, I went for business and political science undergrad, and then for graduate school, I went to public uh, administration, and that's, you know, kind of trying to understand how to run government so they're a little more efficient, a little more effective. It was it was great. So when did you um, stop being a Democrat? Well, um, <laughs> or when did you I've become never... a Republican? <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, I've never been a Democrat. I mean, my my mom's a Democrat. My dad's a Democrat. Right. I mean, I've got plenty of uh, family members I love who are Democrats. How does this work? Well, I mean, I think, you know, um, every family's got to have a black sheep and I guess it's me. (laughs) Uh, So, no, I uh, yeah, I've been uh, even as a teenager, I was really involved in the political process and uh, really cared about uh, making sure our country was moving in the right direction. I just felt pulled more to the right end of the spectrum. But I don't, you know, because I've got family members who are Democrats, I understand Democrats aren't the enemy. I mean, I guess they may be on Thanksgiving Day or something, but, uh, you know, not normally. Now, you grew up in South Dakota. Does the party of Democrat and Republican, I guess, for that matter, in South Dakota, are they different than they are nationally, do you think? 
Well, a little bit they are, but I think we have a tendency to overplay those differences. I mean, if you laid the South Dakota Republican Party platform next to the National Republican Party platform, they wouldn't be that different. And the same would be true for the the South Dakota Democratic Party platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and I think we have seen, you know, Tip O'Neill used to say, all politics is local. Right. And in that environment, and I, I agree that was the case in the you know, 70s and the 80s, in that environment, you could have you know, New England Republicans that were really, really different than the kind of Republicans you might get in Texas. And of course, there are still some differences, but the way all politics is so national these days, increasingly, we're seeing those regional differences diminish. Right. Now, being that uh, South Dakota gets one representative in the House, um, can you actually do anything? Well, sure. I mean, can anybody get anything done in the House? And I think we've got to acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people can be productive in the House. I mean, each member of the House is only one out of 435. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I don't think we'd want to assume that, you know, the guy who represents downtown L.A. has some sort of special connection or working relationship with sure. somebody of a different party who represents a rural part of Northern California. Mm-hmm. I mean, they may they may represent the same state, but, you know, they uh, they are not necessarily walking arm in arm to get things done. Now, do and you, so it comes down. Go ahead. Sorry. No, oh, so, sorry. I'm just wondering, do you think maybe it could go the other way that you could have a little bit more pulled being that you are the one representative for the entire state? Yeah, I think that's possible. I also think there is a special connection that binds together some of these really rural states. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I it's not hard to imagine at all that North Dakota and South Dakota and Montana and Wyoming would work together uh, on things more closely than maybe members of the Illinois delegation would work sure. together on something. Yeah. Why you and why right now in 2018? Well, I, I just think when you look at the national environment, you know, my skill set is a really good fit for what I think we need. You know, I'm not a bomb thrower. I'm not a guy who, I mean, I'm a policy guy. So I don't, you know, I know it's very much in vogue to have angry people shouting bumper sticker slogans at mm. each other. Uh, but I lack both halves of that equation. I mean, I'm really not angry. I mean, I uh, I love this country. Clearly, we've got some problems, but there isn't anything wrong with this country that we can't fix with what is right uh, with this country. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't and I don't speak in bumper sticker slogans, or at least I try not to. Right. I mean, I'm a policy guy and I can talk about the history of aid to families with dependent children and how that evolved into TANF and what workfare meant. I mean, I really love this stuff. And I think that's where you I mean, you build something special and something abiding when you're data driven, when you care about evidence, when you care about facts and when you care about working with the other side. Uh, my party certainly doesn't have a monopoly on good ideas. And, and I think that kind of rhetoric, that kind of tone, that kind of collaborative approach, we need a heck, a, lot of, a heck of a lot of it because we don't have much of it right now. Do you think that um, there is a common ground in, at, at the national level? I mean, has the, has the federal government gotten so big and in so many things that actually getting common ground is, is maybe not really reasonable? Yeah, I think that that comes back to the wisdom of the founders. I mean, they, you know, they put into the Constitution this unbelievable Tenth Amendment, you know, that said, hey, listen, if the Constitution doesn't lay out specifically that something is the federal government's job, Mm -hmm. then it isn't the federal government's job. And in fact, all other powers, I mean, remarkably broad language they used, all other powers are reserved to the states. Now, part of the reason they did that, we know that because they, they wrote about it in things like the Federalist Papers, was that they understood that Massachusetts values and Virginia values were very different even back then. 
And they were uh, pretty convinced that Virginia would come up with better Virginia solutions if they were given that flexibility, and, and Massachusetts would come up with better Massachusetts solutions if given that flexibility. I think we've lost our way a little bit, Craig, and we have tried to do more of a one-size-fits-all in the last 40 years, and I think we feel some of that strain because, you know, Nancy Pelosi and I probably don't agree on very much, but I bet we do agree that San Francisco's values are very different than Mitchell's values or Milbank's values, and maybe we should give people a little bit more of an opportunity to solve problems from where they're at. Are we too far down the road to really fix it, though, do you think? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, Albert Einstein said the most powerful force in the known universe is compound interest. It's pretty remarkable to think about a physicist who was talking about a financial concept <laughs> like that, right? And of course, what he's really talking about is the ability of relatively small tweaks to make a massive change over time. I mean, let the trajectory grow, right? Mm-hmm. Let the let compound interest grow your corpus and and in that way, I think if we can continue, you know, some strong growth and if we can uh, be modest with our spending, we can get something like the federal uh, uh, debt under control. If we are careful to make sure that we don't give the federal bureaucracy a lot more rulemaking power than they need, we can over time uh, right size what what is the right role of the states and what's the right roles of families and businesses and communities and what do we really have to have a federal government do none of this happens overnight but oh my goodness we didn't get here overnight mm-hmm. either right should government and legislation should it be emotional well um yes at the front end and not at the back end so here's what i mean by that i mean i do think you want uh values to drive uh the the framework that you create right mm-hmm. so uh for instance uh you know what do we think the proper role of parents is in um in in education right how much power should the parents have versus how much power should the schools have well i think you can have a lot of emotion and a lot of fundamental principles and values that drive into establishing what are the basic rules of the road um and, and that's where things like constitutions can come from, right? What are the values of our people? What right. do we believe? Fundamentally, what worldview are we embracing here? I think once you set the rules of the road, though, when you get to a particular fact set, then I think facts need to drive the day. You know, we've decided that murder is illegal. Um, but when it comes down to whether or not that particular gal murdered that particular guy, emotions shouldn't come into it. I mean, this is about facts. When you take those facts and apply them onto our values, I think we get a much better decision-making process. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Roe v. Wade should be overturned by the court? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it was, I don't think it was properly decided. Uh, But I, you know, I got a lot of friends on the other side too, and I respect their opinions. I mean, I just happen to really believe that that's a human life. Uh, inside the womb, and I think it's it's worthy of some protection. Um, and of course, I do understand that, that there are people who believe that women should have, uh, you know, tremendous uh, control uh, and empowerment within their bodies. And I don't deny that at all. Uh, I just do think when you're talking about another human life, we need to be sensitive to the idea that that it's worthy of protection. And do you think uh, that there is even like like the conversation should even be entertained um that maybe uh a, a, that other side of the argument is valid now and and my thought then 
uh, a comparison is the global warming debate right now in the national media is kind of got to the point where at the media position and, and at the, the Al Gore side of the, of the argument, there is no um, entertaining of another, another idea or the opposite side of that. Because their thought is, it's established, it's done, period, end of question. Now all we can talk about is, what do we do about it? So what I'm wondering is, if they've come to that conclusion that um, it's settled, period, don't even question the fact that it should be settled or not, um, can the the right, can the, the pro-life side make that claim that says, it's established, this is a human life, so there's no, there's no, no question to even start entertaining the thought that maybe in some circumstances that are, for whatever reason, uh, we can remove that life, we can get rid of it, we can kill it, do whatever we want to call it? It is a difficult concept to try to decide exactly when when does a fetus gain a humanness, right? I mean, if, if, if you believe in, I mean, if you're a religious person and you believe in the soul, I mean, we don't know exactly when the human body becomes ensouled, but let's say you're not a religious person. I and mean, I think we all acknowledge that at some point that fetus develops kind of a humanness and, be, and, and deserves special protection. Now, it just so happens that the Supreme Court these days, you know, uh, defines this humanness on the basis of viability. Can the fetus survive outside the womb? And I don't know that that's ever made sense to me, mm-hmm. right? That that's the magical time that, that all of a sudden we are, our technology advances. I mean, today, somebody has a better machine that can help a baby breathe uh, outside of the womb. And so now that intrinsic humanness gets dialed back 10 more days. I mean, I don't, I've just never felt like the machine drives the humanity. And so since we don't know, I mean, I come down on, on if you're unsure, you probably better protect, right? right? If you don't know, you don't know whether or not that's a, that's a human or not yet, then we probably better uh, be better safe than sorry. And I like what that worldview does to how I think we try to respect and honor one another. Um, you know, if, if something that small is worthy of dignity, then it reminds me that, that you know, all people are, are worthy of dignity, I, I think. You know, it, it's pretty clear in our society that once you're born, you have, you are protected at all costs. I mean, that's kind of what we've established as a society. But prior to breathing, a lot of people think that you don't have to worry about, you know, there's, there's no value there. And one of the arguments they use is, well, the circumstance in which the life was, was conceived was not good, and thus the baby will have a poor quality of life. And that, that's a justification for removing the, the life. Can you hold that position? And, and I know a fair amount of, of pro-life, um, anti-abortion people that, that would give exceptions for rape for other situations that are miserable, and there's nothing good about that. But that that situation would remove the value of the life, and so they're okay with removing that. If the standard is quality of life for value of life, do don't we have to then apply that same standard to the living that have a really miserable quality of life? Can can well, you can you have one or the other? Well, I think that's the logical problem that that uh, people run into. I mean, I, I know exactly what you, what you're saying, and 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 of course, I don't tie the value of a human to um, whether or not their life is miserable, right? I mean, this right. idea of dignity, this you know, this humanness, uh, whether or not you're human, that that's not a judgmental thing. I mean, that's a that's a 
you know, are you worthy? You know, are you living? Are you, sure. are you a human? And so I understand exactly what you're saying. And, and it's, it's part of the logical discomfort that I think our country can have when we talk about the life issue. Yeah. Um, quickly, I know you got to go here shortly. Um, what are your thoughts on term limits? Yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I used to be against term limits because I just thought, you know, we empower the voters to make that decision. Why would we take that power away from them? Mm-hmm. You know, as I've grown more concerned with general dysfunction in Washington, I have wondered to myself and I think ultimately concluded that the psychology of that town would be better if people just knew for certain that it could not be uh, their whole career that this was to go and be a, a tour of duty in essence as a something like a citizen legislator and don't worry about making decisions to keep everybody in town happy for 40 years because you're not going to be in Congress 40 years from now. Right. Well, wasn't that and kind so, of the point? Like in, originally in the founding, wasn't that the goal? This was not a full-time job? Well, yeah, although you certainly had even back then people who made uh, politics and and maybe the law more generally their entire life's work. Mm -hmm. And there was more of a ruling class. People could certainly work themselves into the ruling class, but there were definitely people who viewed, uh, you know, public servitude, serving the public as their life's work and as their career. And, you know, I suppose there's a component of that that can be reassuring, but, you know, you just look at somebody like Thomas Jefferson, right? I mean, this guy was an ambassador. He was the secretary of state. He was, uh, you know, the vice president. He was, you know, the president of the United States. I mean, he he served for many, many years our country. I don't begrudge him that. I just think the political landscape has changed so much that to help combat the dysfunction, perhaps we need uh, an additional check. Because it seems like there's a lot of people that just keep rotating about different, you know, whether they're in, in government, then they get into the cabinet, and then they get into some... Um, think tank and then they're back with the news and then maybe they'll get put back in as a spokesperson. So it does seem like a big circle. Um, Do you feel like you being from South Dakota bring an outside view or because you were in the government locally here, um, are you going to be still kind of an insider? Well, I mean, I've never worked for Congress, so I don't know how you know, I mean, it's not like I have, uh, you know, it's not like I vacationed with any of these people. So I don't know how I could be an insider. <laughs> you right? mean no yachts? <laughs> right, right. Um, but, you know, the reality is I remember uh, the new secretary of ag eight years ago, Walt Bones, great guy from uh, down near Parker. And he was the first day on the job. It was Monday morning. And he had uh, he is maybe 55 or 60 and has spent his entire life in production agriculture and outside of government. First day on the job as the secretary of ag, he takes a phone call at eight 30. He's so excited to take a phone call and, and somebody starts, you know, kind of yelling at him and Walt tries to explain the situation. And five minutes later, the guy, you know, says, you know, you damn bureaucrats are all the same and hung up on him. And, you know, Walt just said, it's unbelievable. I mean, I'd been on the job for half an hour and all of a sudden this guy was sort of painting me with this terrible broad brush Mm -hmm. of being this insider bureaucrat. And so I actually think when we use that kind of language, we do ourselves a disservice. I mean, even proponents of term limits like I am, I mean, there's nobody who suggests the kind of term limits that would prohibit some of the service that you're talking about. I mean, I've never seen a term limits, um, uh, proposal that would say you couldn't go from serving in the U.S. Senate to serving as attorney general, for sure. instance. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, at some point you got to say, well, 
it sure seems like Jeff Sessions, whether you agree with him or not, it sure seems like his motivation is pretty pure because he had a more comfortable life as a United States senator from Alabama. And his life's been pretty hard. I mean, it's been yeah. he has been in in the fire since. And so I try I try not to assume assume people's motives are evil unless I have quite a little bit of evidence that, that they are. Are you going to win? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, we sure, I mean, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I don't know how much stock you put in polls, but, you know, the Argus Leader in Kello Land, they uh, had uh, Mason Dixon, one of the nation's mm-hmm. best polling firms, go out last week. And when they came back with results, they said we were 23 points ahead. I don't know if that's the right number or not, but I would tell you we are ahead right now. But the voters ultimately get to decide on Election Day what happens. When you get in there, being the the lone representative from South Dakota, are you by default, do you have like an open seat on, on committees already? Or how does that piece work? Do you know? Well, there are three tiers of committees. The A committees are the most uh, prestigious and, and they are have a very demanding workload. And, and you only get to be on one committee if you're on an A committee. Of course, mm-hmm. the second tier of committees are B committees and the next tier of committees are C committees. And, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for a freshman to get on a B committee and, and on a C committee. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I am a policy guy. I am a hard worker. I think uh, people out there will understand that I will do my homework and work hard. So I, you know, I, I believe that I'll be able to get on two B committees. I mean, I'm going to work like heck to get on the Agriculture Committee and to get on uh, Transportation and Infrastructure. Uh, those two committees are a really good fit for what South Dakota needs and, and for the background I've had in the private and the, and the public sector. I would love to have you back on at some point after the election just to kind of dig deeper into some of this stuff. And if you would be willing, I would love that. Absolutely. Awesome. Of course. Well, I really appreciate you coming time. on. This is great. And if you're in Millbank after this weekend, of course, because our schedule's so full, we can't get anything in. Um, let, let's do it. I would love a sit down if possible. That'd be really fun. So. So now I know your your listeners are listening to this at some point in the future. Yeah. Any idea when you'll publish? Uh, that should get up this afternoon. Oh, great. Yep. So well, everything good. goes then, up um, on our then, Facebook then page is where it's linked. At, like we send out a link when it goes up on Facebook at Hawaii Mill Bank. Yeah. Well, let me just say to the folks of Grant County, and I'm sure your listenership goes well beyond that, but I'll say to the, the people of Grant County, I mean, I'm, I am going to be up in your neck of the woods on, on uh, November 2nd, which is Friday. next Friday. And I'll so be that's at, like three days away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll be at uh, at Millstone at one thirty, and if you want to come in, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. I love when I generally when I come to Millbank, I camp out at, at uh, Millstone and let people come in, and the Ferrets treat me nice, and and uh, I buy people coffee if they come down and sit and talk to me. So if you're hearing this, stop on in and let's do it again. I I would love that. Absolutely. Perfect. Absolutely. Dusty Johnson running for Congress as our lone representative in the U.S. House. Um. One of the the lines that I like to tell everyone is do your own research and then go vote. Next Tuesday, November 6th, is Election Day. We're on the web at whymillbank.com slash podcasts. This is the interview. We want to thank Dusty Johnson for calling in and giving us half an hour of his time. It's not easy this week, the week before Election Day, to take some time out for... A little old podcast, but we appreciate it, and um, I, I thank thank Dusty for giving us his attention and telling us what he thinks about a couple issues. This is the interview on in the Y Millbank Podcast Network here in Main Street, Millbank, South Dakota. I'm Craig Weinberg. Thank you for listening. Come back again. Have a wonderful day.